Do please uh, keep your Bibles open there. I'll just pick that up. Revelation chapter 6 and 7, as we prepare to look at that passage together. Uh, the passages we're looking at will also be on the screen for you as we go through. Let's pray as we prepare to look at this part of God's Word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that in your Word you teach us about yourself. You teach us how to live as your people. We pray, Lord, that you help us this morning to understand what we read and to see how we can be growing as followers of Jesus because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the greatest and most constant needs of people, uh, all people throughout history, wherever you live and whenever you live, uh, is comfort and protection. Uh, Comfort in the midst of hardship, uh, protection from forces more powerful than yourself. Uh, This is a constant human need because we live in a world where we are constantly surrounded by discomfort, where there are constant attacks that we need protection from. Um, As we come to chapter 6 and 7 of Revelation today, we we see descriptions of some pretty terrible kinds of events. Uh, War and killing, financial distress and economic hardship, famine and sickness, even danger from wild beasts. These were events that the readers of Revelation faced or would soon face. And as basic categories of events, these are the kind of things that humans always face all over the world and throughout history, uh, to varying degrees, depending on when and where you live in the world. We all need comfort in the face of hardship and danger and suffering, and we all need protection uh, from those stronger than us, those who might harm us. There's another paradoxical image in these chapters where we see The lamb, again, who we saw in chapter 5, the lamb who was slain. In chapter 7, we see that the lamb is our shepherd. That wouldn't normally work, would it? Uh, That's a very strange kind of multitasking right there. But in Revelation 6 and 7, it works perfectly. The lamb is our shepherd. Jesus is our comfort, our protector. Let's see how that works and what it means. As we come to Revelation 6, we get to see the seals removed from the scroll. The scroll, which we saw last week in chapter 5, tells us what has happened and what is to happen in the world. It tells us God's plans for his world in both judgment and salvation. The truth will be revealed and the, the people will know it and be comforted by it. And the one worthy to open the scroll and reveal this truth, the lamb who was slain, he begins to remove the seals. Uh, The first four seals may sound a bit familiar as we read through them. Uh, As the seals are removed, the four living creatures that we met in chapter 4 call forth four horses and their riders. Uh, Let's see how John describes what he sees. Seal 1, Revelation 6, verse 2. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. The first seal reveals war and conquest by uh, kings or rulers of the day, it seems. Uh, Seal number two, Revelation 6, verse 4. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Continuing the theme of war and conquest, uh, the second horseman represents the removal of peace, strife and unrest between people, people killing one another. Um, Seal three. Look at verses 5 and 6. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked, 
And there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. This horseman represents economic stress, uh, natural consequence of war. Just think about the rising price of fuel in Australia, for example, or the looming wheat shortage forecast in Europe and Africa, largely because of the war between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Economic stress. Uh, Seal number four, Revelation 6, verse 8. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. Death, more death by sword, famine, plague, even wild beasts, the, the final effects of war, the death of multitudes of people by various causes, and you know both of those who fight the war and, and of those innocents caught in the crossfire. Uh, not, not happy times uh, being described here. The first four seals show us these four horsemen, often referred to in popular culture as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, Kind of a cool-sounding phrase, isn't it? A cool title. Uh, there are many different iterations of the four, uh, the four horsemen in, in popular culture, these characters. Sometimes they represent pretty much what we see here in Revelation. Uh, sometimes they get more varied roles applied to them. A uh, recent Marvel movie in the X-Men series has a powerful evil mutant called Apocalypse. Uh, he's arriving to wreak havoc in the world and establish his rule over the earth. He has these four super-powered mutants uh, helping him, his own four horsemen, and he, as, as he tries to bring in the end of the world as we know it. This is one popular representation. I'm sure you've seen others. It's actually pretty far off course. <laughs> what do the four horsemen really mean? Well, first of all, a reminder that the word apocalypse is the Greek word for revelation. It really just means an unveiling, an unveiling, a revealing of truth. Here we're being told... Uh, what has happened and what is to happen. Uh, apocalypse itself doesn't mean the climactic events of the end of time. It's not actually a term for disaster, although we often use it that way. Uh, but it can mean the revealing of truth, uh, the, the truth about these disastrous events. And the four horsemen come at the start of the events being described here. They don't bring about the end of time or God's judgment of the world. They represent Far more ordinarily, the kind of events that tell us we are in the end times. Uh, Jesus talks to his disciples about this. At, uh, in Matthew chapter 24, he calls it the beginning of birth pains. The four horsemen come at the start of the events being described here. They don't bring about the end of time or God's judgment of the world. They represent these, these events that tell us where we are in in. in in history, uh, we are in the end times, the war and killing, economic hardship, famine and plague. There are events that, and circumstances that humans have lived through and uh, for, for most of our history on earth. <laughs> uh, they've happened and they are happening in the time Revelation was written and they will continue to happen uh, until Jesus returns uh, and God finally brings about the final the fulfilment of his plans for his world. For the people at the time, uh, the time John was receiving this vision and writing it down, the Roman Empire was a hard empire to live in. They expanded the empire by conquest. They enforced compliance. The Pax Romana, 
The peace of Rome was maintained by the sword. Uh, and those who didn't fit, often uh, including the Christians in John's day, well, they could find themselves in all sorts of situations, facing wild beasts in the arena, suffering the hardship of economic sanctions or, uh, or death by any number of means. The specifics may vary over time. But these kind of events uh, describe human, human experience throughout history. They say the 20th century was the bloodiest in human history. All kinds of wars fought and evils done by evil rulers. Uh, these are the things we always need comfort for and protection from. Uh, we're no strangers to war and famine and plague and, and killing and, and even wild beasts. I mean... Of course, wild beasts are fairly easy to avoid here in Australia. You do have to watch out for drop bears, I've heard. The revealing continues with the fifth seal. Uh, have a look at Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. John is seen here, those slain for their faith in Jesus, uh, slain, killed for testifying about him, the martyrs, as we call them. They've gone from the, we've gone from the nature of the world generally to the kind of trouble that will be experienced by Christians specifically. Uh, they ask God in the vision, how long until you judge evil and deal with your enemies? The answer tells them, well, there are more who will die for their faith. This isn't the end, but the end will come. Next, the sixth seal is removed. Sixth seal, Revelation 6, verses 12 to 13. As I watched, I watched as he opened the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a tree when shaken by a strong wind. Now, not many... Events fit what has been described here as the sixth seal is opened. This is not your average natural disaster, the stars falling from the sky. Uh, the next verse tells us the heavens roll back like a scroll. Every mountain and island removed from its place. This is the beginning of God's activity in judging sin and evil. In the next few verses, we see the effects of this on all people, both those who previously held power, the kings and princes, the generals, the rich and the mighty, those who probably caused much of the war and killing and death up until now, and also those who didn't, everyone else. The passage says, no one escapes this part. And see what the people say as this event arrives, Revelation 6, 16 to 17. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? It's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> Probably the only question that would be on your minds at a time like that. Who can withstand it? Uh, survival. The day of God's wrath has come. Sin and evil is being dealt with, and they just want to hide from God's face. That's all they can try to do. Because who can withstand a holy God's righteous judgment of sin? Well, that question is answered in verse, uh, chapter 7. Before we see the answer, a quick reflection uh, on what we've read in chapter 6. There's a, a lot of awful stuff happening in the world. What's described here is what we see around the world every day. Uh, all the stuff the four horsemen symbolise, the stuff that 
causes such pain and discomfort and anguish, the evil that the, the powerful so often afflict, inflict against the weak and vulnerable, uh, and, the, and the pain that our own everyday sin causes to each other. We all sin, we all do and say things that hurt other people. We can often ask, well, where is God in all of this? According to Revelation, God is there. God doesn't turn a blind eye to it. He's not absent while it's happening. He has a plan to deal with sin and evil. There will be a day when God judges people for the pain they've caused, for the judges people for their, their, their sins and the evil things they do. And even though we might not like the idea of a judgmental God, we really do want him to deal with evil in the world, don't we? Especially if he is the all-powerful God that the Bible tells us he is, what kind of God would he be if he, if he couldn't intervene? What kind of God would he be if he wouldn't deal with sin and wrongdoing when the time was right? Certainly, if he just stood by and watched, well, we'd be right to question him and turn our back on him. But he doesn't just stand by and watch. He has a plan and he will judge evil because he is a righteous God. Our part is, decide, is to decide which side are we on when he comes. Because those who are his, chapter 7 tells us, will not suffer when he comes in judgment. See how those who belong to God are protected from his judgment. Uh, Revelation 7 verses 1 to 3. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Those who belong to God <clears throat> will be sealed. Uh, they belong to him. They will carry the seal of something that shows ownership. They will be sealed by God. This isn't uh, the only mark of ownership we'll see in Revelation. Satan plays copycat uh, a little later with the mark of the beast. We'll talk about that another day. But here, God knows who belongs to him. God knows those who follow him. And they're protected when he comes to judge the world because the Bible tells us well, that all people sin. We all disobey God and live in rebellion against him at times, and so we're all subject to his judgment of sin. But we won't be judged if we're his. A little bit more on that, uh, a little bit further down. The next thing chapter 7 tells us is the number of those who are sealed. There's a specific number here, 144,000. Uh, this is a number that's got a lot of airplay over the years. You might be thinking, well, surely there have been 144,000 Christians already in the history of the world since Revelation was written. Well, surely heaven's full already. Why are we wasting our time? Uh, all the spots are gone. Why are we even here? It's, it's like waiting in a queue for a sold-out show. But don't worry. Before you get up and leave, <laughs> like so many numbers in Revelation, the 144,000 is symbolic. It has to be, because in chapter 7, verse 9, John sees a great multitude that can't be counted. Revelation 7, 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now, the symbolic nature of the 144,000 would have been clear to John's readers. The 12 tribes of Israel are listed, uh, and there are 12,000 from each tribe. The number 12 uh, represents uh, completeness or perfection in Revelation. It symbolizes wholeness, uh, completeness. Uh, And so we take uh, the 12 times 12,000 to represent the whole of Israel or all of God's people. Uh, some say the 144,000 is the number of uh, is only the number of Jewish Christians, and, and then the great multitude is all other Christians from all the other nations. Uh, others say that you know both images are two ways of talking about the same thing: the church, all of God's people from all nations through all of time. Uh, and I think that's the best way to see it. I think the 144,000 is all of God's people. Uh, well, why? Because the New Testament doesn't normally distinguish between the two. In fact, we often see uh, them combined. The concept of Israel often in the New Testament represents all of God's people, all Christians. Uh, Just a couple of examples of that. The Apostle Paul doesn't distinguish between Jew and Gentile. Uh, Look at how he describes God's people in Galatians uh, chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All who belong to Christ are children of Abraham, not just those Uh, born in Abraham's line, is what Paul's saying. This is the emphasis the New Testament makes regularly. Uh, A little bit further down in Galatians, chapter 6, verses uh, 15 to 16, Paul says this, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. See, Paul clearly describes the Israel of God as all of God's people. Jew and Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, it doesn't matter what matters, is belonging to Jesus, being a new creation in him. And so the two groups uh, described in Revelation 7 are actually one group, all of God's people saved from his judgment. Uh, One more reason I think this is what we're seeing here. The passage follows the pattern that we saw last week. Uh, Remember in chapter 5, John hears something and then he sees something. Uh, but they're one and the same thing. John hears that the Lion of Judah is able to open the scroll. And then he looks and sees a lamb that appears as though it has been slain. But the lamb who is slain is the one worthy to open the scroll. The Lion and the Lamb are the same. They're two images of Jesus who died and rose to life again, winning victory over sin and death. Uh, The same pattern, I think, is in chapter 7. John hears the number of those who are sealed, 144,000, And he turns and sees the great multitude, the 144,000 and the great multitude, two images of the same thing, God's saved people, those who follow him and belong to him, those who are saved from God's judgment because of Jesus. Have a look at what they're doing. Uh, Verse 10, chapter 7, verse 10. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's clear that John in the vision is seeing 
uh, heaven again. Uh, we see again what we saw last week. God saved people surrounding the throne and praising God, praising the Lamb, Jesus, their Saviour. Salvation belongs to our God. That means salvation comes from God. Salvation is his to give, to give to those who turn to him, and he gives it generously. Now look at what John learns about this great multitude, a few verses further down, Revelation 7, verses 13 to 14. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The great multitude, they praise the Lamb because he has saved them. His blood has washed their robes, made them white and clean. Revelation is full of paradoxes and there's another paradoxical image for you. How can blood make something clean? In our experience, it does the exact opposite, doesn't it? Uh, We saw this image last term in our Exodus series. Uh, I've got another blood and nursing story for you this morning. It's not as gory as the last story, just so you know. Uh, So uh, most nurses are pretty fanatical about being clean and tidy. I know, I worked as a nurse for 10 years. A crisp, white, clean bed sheet is perfection to a nurse. Uh, I worked with one nurse... uh, (laughs) We took this obsession a little bit too far. Uh, we worked together in ICU at the Royal Brisbane Hospital, one-to-one nursing in ICU, which is great for nurses that are a little bit OCD. This nurse, uh, on this particular day, uh, she, she had all the time in the world just to spend on this one patient, and she just had to make her patient look perfect. She fussed over him all day, cleaned him up, changed his gown and his bed sheets, new white sheets pulled so tight you could bounce a ball off them. Everything looked great, clean and crisp and white. And then somehow, just as she was finishing up, she got a spot, uh, one tiny spot of blood on the sheet next to his right arm. But it all looked so neat and clean and tidy until this one little, the the drop of blood really stood out. Blood makes things dirty, not clean. Uh, There's no way to clean it as it was, and she didn't have time to change the whole sheet for just one spot of blood. And so out came the liquid paper. (laughs) I'm not joking, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. She went to the nurse's station, grabbed a bottle of liquid paper, just painted over that one little spot of blood. Uh, she, she got ribbed for that pretty mercilessly for a while. <laughs> it was going over the top, I think. Uh, looked all lovely and clean afterwards, though. She was happy because uh, you couldn't see the blood anymore. The blood doesn't make things clean. Does it? We notice when blood is there, it makes things dirty. Except when it comes to Jesus. When it comes to our own sin and wrongdoing as people, the sin that makes us subject to God's wrath when he comes in judgment, is our sin, well, that's really a sign that we reject his rule in our lives. When it comes to that, Jesus' blood can make us clean. His death on the cross paying the penalty for our sin. As one who is perfect, who never sinned, well, that makes it possible for us to be forgiven that penalty, uh, to be freed from the the fear of death, uh, the the, the fear of God's wrath, if we believe in him and accept his sacrifice in our place. The white robes the great multitude are wearing represent righteousness, 
They are right before God. No guilt, no sin to be paid for because they are washed clean in the blood of Jesus. His righteousness transferred to them as a gift as they put their faith in him. This is the trouble and pain and suffering that we truly need protection from. Uh, The question asked in chapter 6 verse 17 is a question all people should ask. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? God has come in judgment. Who can withstand the wrath of God? Well, answer, those whose sins are washed clean by Jesus. We'll face trouble and suffering, pain and tribulation in this world. We're not saved from that as Christians. In fact, Jesus promised his disciples they would have trouble. Uh, John 16, verse 33, I have told you these these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now the Greek word for trouble in that verse is the same Greek word as uh, the the word the NIV uh, translates tribulation in Revelation 7 verse 14. You will have trouble and tribulation, Jesus says, but you'll come through it. God has a plan in the midst of all the strife. We simply need to trust in him. Christians will suffer terribly, sometimes disproportionately in this world. Remember all the martyrs under the throne in John's vision. An all too common experience for Christians throughout history. But if they're Christians, they will never be taken away from God. To be sealed doesn't mean to be removed or made immune to trouble. It means that the trouble won't keep you from your eternal destination. People say it's not the destination, but the the journey that counts. Not in this case. When it comes to life and eternity, it's not the journey that counts, but where you end up that matters. Whatever trouble you face in this world, however long it takes, takes you to get around to following Jesus, the most important thing is that you end up on his side, put your faith in him and be on the right side when he returns. The trouble and strife in the first six seals of the scroll builds to this crescendo of God's final judgment. And those who belong to God are safe. Uh, See what the situation is in the end uh, for those who have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, Verses 15 to 17, last three verses of chapter 7. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. The lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Sounds idyllic, doesn't it? Sounds idyllic, unrealistic to some, just a bit of pie in the sky when you die sort of idea, but it's real. Those who belong to God are protected when he comes in judgment. Their sin won't be counted against them. They'll be right before God because of the blood of Jesus. They'll be comforted. The hardship of life here and now, and life can be hard, even in wealthy, comfortable Australia, uh, that trouble and hardship will be no more. Uh, We'll read some very similar words again when we Come to the description of the new Jerusalem at the end of the book, our final home forever with God. The lamb is our shepherd. 
Jesus is our comfort. Jesus is our protector. We belong to him. This is what all people truly need. Are you suffering under the weight of the world? You need the lamb. Are you worried that you might not bear up under the hardship or suffering? Well, the lamb is your shepherd. Are you tired of shedding tears? Well, you need God to wipe away your tears. Do you not know what the future holds? Are you worried about what's beyond this life, not sure that you're right with God? You need the lamb. You need to wash your robes clean in the blood of the lamb, be made right with God, and accept the forgiveness and hope that comes from believing in Jesus. Jesus, the lamb, is our shepherd. Let's pray to him. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we praise you because you are a loving and powerful God. We praise you for your righteousness. We praise you that you work in your world to bring about your plans. We praise you because you do not turn a blind eye to evil. We praise you that one day all evil and sin and wrongdoing will be dealt with. And we praise you for your love and mercy that you provide a way to be saved from that judgment, a way to be forgiven for sin and to be close to you again as your people. We praise you that through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, that through his dying in place of us for our sin and that in his rising again he has defeated death, defeated sin, And we praise you that if we trust in him, we are sealed, we belong to you, and we have no fear. We praise you because the hardships of this life will one day seem like nothing. We praise you that your judgment of sin will not touch those who belong to you. We pray that we might be strong in our faith, put our faith in you, Gratitude for the salvation you provide, live for you. Lord, we pray all of this in the name of your Son Jesus and uh, for your glory, Lord. Amen.